Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I'm really excited for this podcast. Um, Somebody that I've known for a while, we've traded messages and recognized her good work in our faith community um, for a while. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Um, We both said a prayer before we started, and Tiffany's um, really brave to share her story, and this takes a lot of courage for her, and I think she's doing this out of love that those of you that are um, walking a complicated road um, would feel hope and perspective and that you're not alone. Um, Tiffany grew up in California, I believe. She lives in the San Jose area. Um, she was was active in the church um, from 17 for a period of time, and then she had some difficult experiences. Um, she'll talk about those um, that led her to separate herself from the church and even a belief in God. Even the church building was triggering, and it kind of reminded her the experiences she will share. And then she's going to talk about why she came back to church and kind of got through that. And um, and this story doesn't mean it needs to be your story. Um, Tiffany's careful that way, but I've recognized there's a lot of people that have gone through difficult experiences and have felt they needed to separate themselves from the church or have even lost their belief in God and and kind of want to figure out a way to come back. <laughs> um, and that can be really complicated because um, we don't have a lot of examples of people that have come back that have worked through complicated things. I think sometimes the tools to bring somebody in the church are different or ourselves and the tools to sort of rebuild our relationship with the church if trust has been broken. And so I don't know everything about Tiffany's story. Often when we start these podcasts, I'm going to learn it just like you're going to learn it. And But um, is that okay for an introduction, Tiffany? So I will just turn it over to you with the prayer that you'll just be able to share what I just sense Tiffany's incredible heart and goodness, and this is brave. And so I'll be praying for you the whole podcast, Tiffany, that you'll be able to share what's in your heart with our listeners. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. I greatly admire the work that you do. So jumping right into it, the beginning of my faith deconstruction began in 2016 when I was sexually assaulted and a faith leader blamed me twice for it. The reason why this was such a pivotal point for me was because 17 years prior I had an anxiety attack and a blessing I received then had told me if I was obedient and sacrificed that I would be protected. This blessing took place in 1999, and I had put so much faith into it. At that time, I was estranged from my family. What happened was that one relative had blamed me for stealing thousands and thousands of dollars, and I told the truth and I had done that I had done no such thing. No one believed me. And another relative had sexually assaulted me, and I told the truth, and then no one believed me. My mother took their side, and I was disowned by her and estranged by the family. On top of it, a younger sibling who I had been looking after since I was 14 years old came to live with me now, and I was taking care of them full time. With no support, the blessing that I received when I was 18 years old really meant a lot to me. Also, being someone who had been sexually assaulted starting at the age of three, I continued till I was 18 by multiple persons. 
I think that it's important to note when people come out and talk about sensitive topics like this, the assumption is, oh, you've been sexually assaulted so many times in your life. You must have done something to bring it upon yourself. And you also start to believe this too, that somehow you're to blame for other people assaulting you. And this is so, so far from the truth. I look back on my life now, and I was severely sexually assaulted in my youth, and I know now I'm not the only person who has been in those kinds of situations. But by this time, I wasn't going to therapy for any of it. So this blessing was my protective armor. I really, really believed in it. At that time, I was estranged from my family. And having just recently became LDS a year prior, I had thought, like, God will take care of me. But I didn't know how. And I just... I, I just felt like this was the time I could put my faith to a test. Although it was overwhelming to not have the support of my mom to feel and know that people weren't believe me for speaking my truth, I, I definitely was alone and I was in a lot of pain and felt a lot of confusion. And I didn't get why this was happening. And a friend encouraged me then to go get a blessing and so I did. And when I was given that promise, I did everything I could to be obedient, to sacrifice, to be the best Christian possible. And in between all of that, there were these miscarriages and other things that were just really heavy on me that was going on in my life. Um, And when I was sexually assaulted, again, it was like my armor broke. It was like an ax swinging down, and I was done with God. I cut him out because he didn't protect me. I realized I had a lot of heavy emotions going on that I couldn't recognize. I just felt the feelings, and they were constantly overwhelming. What made it easier for me was that I needed to let go of any labels, stories, schemas, the way I interpret my emotions in order to make it through another day. The shedding of those narratives and disbelief in a God was instant, and I went into pure survival mode. So the sexual assault was the catalyst. I'm not comfortable going into details, but I will say it happened, and I was left in utter shock. Mind you, I'm in my mid-30s, and I thought I had things, life figured out on how to best protect myself. I was sorely wrong. I immediately felt like I was in hell after it happened. I thought about that blessing that I had received when I was 18 years old and immediately felt betrayed by God. I had told a loved one that same day and was quickly dismissed. It was already so hard to talk about, and so it really, really hurt. I remember taking a scolding hot shower following that conversation with a loved one and wanting all of my skin to come off because I hated my body. Instead, I just got a burn and it still didn't solve anything. A thought came later. I decided to call my therapist, Daniel Burgess, and had the hardest conversation of my life. I asked him, how did this happen? How could this happen to me again? 
He lovingly and gently walked me through on how I missed the red flags. I remember crying because I felt responsible and he tried to tell me that I wasn't. Among other things, he said his counsel was clear and that I needed to report the incident, learn to feel safe in my body and to be patient and compassionate with myself, to avoid blaming myself. After having been dismissed by a loved one, I already felt I knew there's no way I could follow through with the advice given by my therapist because I was in so much depression. I I just can't even... I, it was awful. At this time, Daniel Burgess had emphasized three key points that would get me through the next phase of my life. And I would like to share that with y'all. First, the significance of seeking professional help like therapy to process the trauma and work towards healing. It's crucial to emphasize that everyone's journey of reco- recovery is unique. Second, building a support system, which may include friends, family, or support groups, to provide a safe space for sharing and encouraging during encouragement during the the recovery process. Lastly, discussing the need for self-care and setting boundaries, both physically and emotionally. Daniel stressed the need to listen to my intuition and prioritize my well-being can help empower me in regaining a sense of self and control over my life. Surprisingly, I was not overwhelmed by this call, but I knew I had to just sit with what happened. The next day, I went to see my friend Kinjal, and it was at her home that I found comfort in sitting next to a Buddha statue. It reminded me of mom in my Asian culture. Although my mom was a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, she was pretty much a Mormon Buddhist. A few days later, I went to a trusted faith leader to get a blessing. I thought I would be able to go in, get this blessing, and go on my way. I didn't want to give any details about why I needed a blessing. However, when repeatedly asked, I felt pressured to answer and doubted my gut to not open up because I trusted this faith leader. He started asking for a detailed account, and I found myself repeating myself several times. After an hour and 45 minute discussion, he concluded that I was at fault for the sexual assault. He opened the door and I left in complete shock. I remember puking on the drive home and all over myself in my car because it was abundantly clear the foundation that I had relied on for so long is gone. I was done with God. The next day, this faith leader apologized and instead of reacting, I left it as is. A week later, he asked me to come back in and I agreed to it. I don't know why, but I did. It had been a week since I saw him last, but I still didn't feel good. Wanting to be all sorts of obedient, I agreed to come in. 20 minutes into that meeting, it was the same rhetoric, and I ended up cussing him off. I was that mad. I remember seeing a pair of scissors and a hymn book on the desk. I felt so threatened, and I just remembered 
walking away and putting away my thoughts of what I needed to do to protect me because it, none of that felt right. What he said didn't feel right, but leaving did. Later at a state conference, that same faith leader flagged me down and apologized to me in front of a whole crowd of onlookers. I was already humiliated by ever interaction with him at this point, but this specific one left me incredibly mortified. Because of this terrible interaction I had with a trusted faith leader, I became incredibly scared to tell anyone of my own faith because of the fact that members culturally do oftentimes put faith leaders on a pedestal. And also because I felt that anyone could easily jump to that same conclusion as that faith leader. But I gathered up my courage and called a friend in my ward at that time, Sherry. And Sherry, she listened compassionately. She not once made me feel guilty. She never said, well, people are imperfect. She told me what happened was wrong and should not have occurred. She cried with me. She listened with me. That meant so much to my achy heart. Later on, another friend reached out and encouraged that I share my story on Reddit. So I ended up posting anonymously and most people there gave me the greatest comfort. It turns out that many of those on this forum were also experiencing a faith de deconstruction, and I wasn't alone. People responded to that post and sent me private messages detailing similar experiences. A leader on there had organized a mini forum that same or following year where women shared those stories that I was receiving in my personal messages but they did it so publicly. I felt like I found my people and I was safe. It was, it was there where I learned many other dark truths about the LDS faith, but also they were truths. No doubt I went down a rabbit hole and my shelf broke. I was so grateful for receiving all of these puzzle pieces to a much bigger picture at some point I felt comforted with all these different puzzle pieces but at the same time I still I I haven't yet received the bigger picture I know that one puzzle piece for me was that I couldn't stay in the LDS faith because it was incredibly triggering I saw a hymn book and it triggered me. The hallway that connected from the door when you entered the building, down to the gym, down to where you'd sit for sacrament, that was triggering for me. So I started ditching church sometimes and go to other churches. I remember attending a Catholic church over in the peninsula and sitting in front of the statue of Mary and found it so much comfort it reminded me back when I was a homeless teenager. I used to sleep at a Catholic church and they would feed me tacos. And that's why I felt largely safe there. I looked up next to her. I saw someone changing the hymn numbers on the wall. I had two thoughts. 
One was, dang, their hymn book must be huge because we're entering, you know, like the higher end of the numbers close to the thousands. And two, it was my birthday. On the wall, it was my birthday. I felt so seen. I remember looking at the statue of Mary and just felt this connection. something, someone, not a physical person really, but whatever it was, I felt it touch my right shoulder giving me comfort. It told me that I would find a home within the goodness of the world. And when I'm ready, I will return to the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically the LDS faith community, if I wanted to. The most memorable part in all of this was when I connected with my gay bestie, Jared. He is someone who had left the LDS faith and was extremely devoted until the end. He was, uh, I think, an executive ward secretary, too. He had even spent years and years in gay conversion therapy because he viewed that and was told that that's how he would be so devout. And he wanted to, he wanted that, but it was killing him. And he felt he was prompted to leave the faith. And he shared this with me in such a personal and tearful conversation. I, I felt like none of this made sense. So when I told Jared everything, he reframed all of my pain in a way that felt safe for me. He brought his light and goodness into it. It was the only time I felt any kind of warmth that year, and to think it was over a bowl of pho and spring rolls. So a couple months passes by, and I'm invited to attend a happy hour, and I've gone to numerous happy hours before, none of which I've ever drank, because we all know that those drinks are half off, but so are the appetizers, and I'm all about that food and I go and this this happy hour was completely different I was surrounded by friends and I had smelled alcohol and it made me feel normal it was strangely satisfying strangely nurturing at that moment, the buildup from all of the sexual assault, religious tra trauma, even miscarriages, etc., everything built up, and the smell of alcohol had calmed my nerves. The decision to drink wasn't taken lightly, but it was so clear to me. I knew it helped me get through another day. Up until this point, I haven't drank since 1997. And there it was, 2016 drinking two shots of whiskey and felt fine. It helped dissipate the feelings of suicidal ideation that was growing inside of me. And I was constantly dealing with since that dumpster fire started. It's important to note that within the first year of the sexual assault, I was still trying to be somewhat present in the church, despite patterns of slowly letting go and only going ever so often. Prior to the sexual assault, I was the most studious, 
reader of the Gospels, of both the New Testament, of the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. I read commentaries and memorized church history. I wasn't like into religious scrupulous, I can't even say that word, scrupulosity, but I, I believe, I was a devout believer. And all of a sudden, it just all disappeared from me. My friend Sherry encouraged me to get a blessing for my stake president. And I told her I was struggling hard as is to go to church. Like, why would I even try to get a blessing? Like, these blessings just don't work. And more importantly, they just put me in harm's way. Like, what I it just didn't make any sense. Granted, it took me three months to finally report the incident to the cops about having been sexually assaulted and now 10 months to see another priesthood leader to get a blessing. I said, why the hell not? So this time I walked into the building, sat down, got my blessing from my stake president. And in this blessing, it happened to have said that God believed me. I hadn't told my stake president anything that had happened. I don't know if people found out were gossiping in the back, but I know no one that I knew told them because I didn't tell a lot of people. I can count it on one hand of folks that knew. After the blessing, I thanked my stake president for it and I shared with him what happened. He, he gave me the most nurturing response but by that time, it meant nothing to me. That blessing didn't even mean anything to me. I felt like a fraud. Being there and the whole concept of religion just seemed like a farce. Returning to the LDS church nearly every Sunday made me feel so sick and fake and made me dissociate. My insides felt like I was falling apart. I didn't realize I was re-traumatizing myself every time I went back into that building. In the meantime, I decided to go back to what I knew which was to not believe in a God, but rather spirituality-filled life with tarot cards, crystals, energy healing, frequencies, a deep study of Mary Magdalene, and lots and lots of hiking. Eventually, I incorporated volunteering, and it all became my new safety zone. A couple of other times, I made the mistake of trying to tell people my story, and they responded by saying, they are imperfect people, and they make mistakes too. Yo, one person even had the audacity to, audacity to repeatedly victim blame me. After all that occurred, it was the blessing that I received back in 1999 that hurt me the most. The combination of everything had knocked the wind completely out of me, and I sat with myself for several months. What I thought was real all felt made up. There's no way that I could believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, just a puzzle piece, but one that had expired. By the end of that year, I started working for a popular children's hospital here in the Bay Area. I worked on the administrative side and worked alongside patient families and healthcare experts. It was working with the crisis and gender adolescent patients that had the most positive impact on me. It even made me want to pursue a career in trauma. Come the new year, I was trying to figure out how to stay soft and not let this faith crisis that hurt me so badly turn me into a person that I was not. 
My nervous system was heavily dysregulated and I constantly felt in literal pain. Every time I was around anything that reminded me of the LDS faith, it made things worse for me. Also, having been victim blamed for the incident really guarded me and I was and I was making decisions that wasn't typical of myself. I was constantly being triggered and it created a fear-based belief inside me of, am I worthy enough to receive guidance from God, if there even was one? If you're not happy, then you're doing something wrong. I had to let everything go and focus on what brings me joy because it was making me feel peaceful. At this time, a queer patient at my job noticed I was in disarray and lovingly told me it was time for me to work on my intergenerational healing. It was the first time I've ever heard of anything like that. It was odd that while working at a child's uh, children's psychiatry, I hadn't considered doing trauma therapy, and so a seed was planted. I frequently felt dysregulated, and it was exhausted being in survival mode. Someone else had suggested that I should just pray and ask God why I was sexually assaulted again. It was such a hard and emotional prayer for me to say, because at this point, I hadn't been to church in over two years. It was very off and on, and I most definitely wasn't doing any kind of that praying. I didn't even really believe in a God, and I had so much anger towards the person who suggested I pray because it was the same person who continually dismissed me in all of this. Nevertheless, I said the prayer. Hi. If there's a God, if you're even real, why was I raped again? The next morning came when my iPhone 5 froze and then went into an update. Once that completed, one more app updated and it froze. It stayed that way long enough for me to notice it. It was the Gospel Library app. I thought, well, I have the time. Let's let's delete this app, make room for other stuff, like more photos of my food. I don't know, but curiosity, curiosity struck hard and it said to me, let's see what's on this app. So I clicked on it and I was incredibly overwhelmed, but I just remember because I couldn't look at the contents of it. I just said, okay, wherever I'm at, I'm going to just read whatever the first thing that comes up. So I took my finger and I scrolled on the screen and I swiped up and all of the readings just went through and through. And I just picked one at random and I found myself reading a story by Elder Anderson from his 2017 conference talk called Overcoming the World. It was it was early in the morning. I remember just feeling so safe within myself after I read this talk. And it was so clear I felt so clear for me to sit with how I felt, revisit my thoughts, 
about the possibility of there being a God. I thought, okay, well, it isn't cancer. There are things in my life that are beyond our control. The sexual assault and all the previous ones and being blamed for it twice was out of my control. And it felt for the first time I felt for the first time that I wasn't responsible for something that somebody else did to me. I felt this like pressure release and I felt a hint of being whole consume me. I couldn't explain it. And I'm not trying to say like the little other people's trials And I never thought what I went through was less or worse than the next person. But I most certainly needed to see the bigger picture because prior to all of this, I thought that's what I had. And nothing made sense. But after reading this talk by Elder Anderson, I felt like things were in a completely different language. I just said, okay, maybe just a little step will adjust my path. I'll adjust my journey and pivot. It had been so long that I went without thinking about a God to this point. And granted, I was reading an LDS related talk and I didn't feel like I was shaking as much when I read it. I felt calmed by something from the LDS faith. I felt this tugging at my heart and in my spine and my core, and I really, really felt Him. I felt God. I truly felt the presence of my Heavenly Parents and didn't know what it meant, but it stayed with me. And again, any time I did something and I felt a stronger connection to to my heavenly parents, I pivoted accordingly. Every day since that answered prayer, I couldn't stop thinking about my heavenly parents. And one day while driving home from work and sitting in traffic, I thought maybe, maybe if I have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, perhaps I was their daughter. Maybe I'm a daughter of God after all. And then something struck me in my heart so hard that I felt a part of me wake up and it had been waiting for me to make that realization. Sorry, I don't mean to be so tearful. Anyways, when traffic ended, I recall being so hungry that I went to go pick up food for dinner and I walked into L&L's Hawaiian barbecue to pick up a plate lunch. I had two of them, and and I had put in an order for two, and I remember standing in line, and there were two women in front of me that turned around, smiling so boldly, said, how are you? Did you know that you are a daughter of God? 
I was in tears. I couldn't talk. I was in amazement by what they said and I couldn't stop crying. I smiled and felt my nervous system dysregulate a lot less too. This prompted me to meet with the bishop because I had no idea what was going on. All of a sudden, my life started to feel so fresh and new. At this time, the word boundaries had changed and I was uh, now assigned to be in a new ward with a new bishop. This time I met with him. I told him everything and he told me I could go to the temple the next day if I wanted to, but I didn't. I had made what people would consider lots and lots of errors and I own everything and I did, but to go from barely believing in a God to now finding out that I'm a daughter of heavenly parents and then to be encouraged to go to the temple was way too much. I I could not. I That was a lot. The temple was off limits as it seemed so opulent and abhorrent. The thought of it triggered my suicidal ideation. I mean, it was overwhelming. I was looking to live a pain-free and life with that was filled with lots and lots of peats. This same year, I decided to see a new therapist. Daniel Burgess had moved, and I felt it was better for me to start seeing a non-LDS therapist. By a series of small miracles, I found one, and she was this amazing Jewish Greek woman that was a leader in her field of trauma. All she cared about was my happiness and safety. I felt so seen and loved by her. There came a point where I wasn't progressing well in my therapy sessions, and she had suggested to me to stop wearing my garments, which is so odd. I know I had stopped believing in God, and yet I was still believe I was still wearing my garments, and. And it was just habit, right? So I came to learn that they were triggering me. She said that a huge part of why my nervous system was being dysregulated was because that was an unseen trigger for myself. She recommended that I'd stop wearing them. And I needed to emphasize really learning to love my skin and my body which also meant wearing sleeveless and attire of any length. It was hard at first, and eventually it felt so good to feel the sunshine on my bare shoulders and to feel very safe in my skin. I slowly started to love all the parts of me that my mother loved because I was her daughter. I looked back in photos from that first year after the sexual assault and I see a beautiful tiff, but in that moment, I had saw someone worse than worse to the point that I just wanted to kill myself every single day. And who knew that taking off my garments and learning to love my skin would be the very thing to help bring me closer to feeling safe. She also worked in a lesson about joy. She blatantly told me, 
I may not like your Mormon faith, but I think we need to figure out what brings you joy. It took me many, many months to understand and figure out what this was. After my experience with reading Elder Anderson's talk, Overcoming the World, I came back to her and said, God, God and volunteering brings me joy. The pain of what the bishop did was so catastrophic to my system that my memories weren't the same and I had forgotten a lot of the goodness. I would ruminate often and it was frustrating because I felt like I could barely function. It was a miracle that I could even hold a job. I, I learned that my nervous system was doing this out of a protection to me. The things I remember that brought me joy were volunteering work and things within my LDS faith community. It, it was just so hard to believe, like it was so black and white to cut it off. And the very thing that was hurting me was actually the very thing that I needed to, to be my antidote to, to, to help heal me. And I had this calling at that time where I was the church service mission uh, Nary photographer. And I went back to that. Participating in community care was a priority. This realization eventually brought me to signing up for working with NGOs that was dedicated to fighting child sex trafficking in Nepal. It was being a part of community care that helped answer more of my questions as to why I was sexually assaulted again. And it came so tender and it came so personalized, it as in these answers. And it was puzzle pieces. An opportunity came through my church service missionary photography calling that was to be one of the photographers for the Oakland Temple Rededication in 2019. I knew at this point I was more open to doing more things that involved my LDS faith community, but I would read my scriptures and still struggle. I could I couldn't let myself do a lot because the triggers were so large. And it was clear, like, suicidal ideation, I, I didn't know if it ever would go away. And I wanted to try to make it through another day. And I still hadn't told a lot of people what I was going through. It was all such a secret. And, it, and yet here I am realizing I'm, there might be a little hope. So I'm at this assignment at the Oakland Temple Rededication, and I was prompted, and I didn't realize then I was prompted, but the thought, the good thoughts coming together, a very diverse and inclusive group of youth. I always photograph diversity and inclusivity because representation matters. Um, that's just who I am as a person. I'm a woman of color who is of mixed race, and this is just has always been my my community, my world. So I gathered the youth, had them wait in an area by the Oakland Temple. I didn't know why, but I followed the promptings. Later, I was approached by President and Sister Oaks, and we talked for a bit. 
and I awkwardly told them I was prompted to get the youth together to meet them. Him and his wife willingly went to greet them. I stood there in disbelief and was touched by all the smiles on the faces of the youth as they shook the couple's hand. Later that evening, I found out from Silver the youth that they felt like they were going to meet President and Sister Oaks. I also find out that these youth that specifically told me this, they were of the LGBTQIA plus community and that they each had, before attending the event, had a series of questions regarding their sexuality and then after meeting President Sister Oaks had walked away with answers that reaffirmed that they each were a child of God and that they mattered and that they mattered even being LGBTQIA plus child. And that meant a lot to me to know that they felt this because that's what I do for my work, working with the gender clinic. And I just, uh, I was humbled on the drive home from the Oakland Temple because they were teaching me what I barely knew. And that was to have faith and to ask those hard questions and to keep moving forward. And I just said, okay, if these kids can do it, then I know I can too. And it meant a lot even more so to see that they knew that a God loved them for who they are. And I know for them in this faith community, it's a very challenging position to be LGBTQIA plus and to not feel like you have a safe space. And I realized that that is something that I need to advocate more, even more so beyond my images, beyond the work that I was doing at this, you know, world-renowned hospital. I needed to really be an advocate within my faith community, but that also meant that I, I would need to show up more to church. And that was something hard for me to grasp because of those triggers. Also, President and Sister Oaks, specifically President Oaks, had said some remarks to me that was so personalized. And it was just like this puzzle piece. And all of a sudden, my heart felt softened and my brain started to ruminate a lot less. And I was able to forgive that faith leader who had blamed me twice for being sexually assaulted and I wasn't intending to hold a grudge I'm not a holding grudge kind of person but when your brain breaks and especially your heart anything that caused it you stay away from and you don't you just leave it alone but after that experience at the Oakland Temple Rededication I felt healed a little bit more and I pivoted and I was completely shocked in the direction I started to go after this point. So at this point in my story, it's been almost three years since the sexual assault and that meeting with President Oaks, that experience with him and his wife weighed heavily on my mind. And once again, I felt I was pivoting and this time 
I found myself in the office with a new bishop, and I told him I wanted to quit drinking. I told him I wanted to try this repentance thing because I had forgotten most gospel knowledge and learned experiences since the sexual assault happened. Um, so I opened up to him. I left that meeting in a lot of physical pain. I was discussing things that were triggering. And because I was choosing to repent, I told myself I wasn't going to act out and drink anymore. I was done self-medicating. My nervous system was struggling. And for about five days from having had that conversation with the bishop, I was falling apart. When I first started drinking again, it was in 2016, and I would drink nearly every day because I needed to make it through and deal with these suicidal ideations. I didn't go to work drunk. It was usually after work, and I would just take some kind of shot of some kind of alcohol, just enough so that my body would feel calm. And alcoholism is a real thing. And I just, I dealt with it growing up. And then when I became LDS, I gave it up. And then to have it return in my life was just like this, I don't know, it was bittersweet. But for five days of feeling this overwhelming pain, I felt I was gonna self-delete myself. I didn't wanna drink again, but I also just didn't wanna be in this pain of suicidal ideation every single day. I even sent the bishop a nasty email telling him it was humiliating opening up to him and felt the repentance process didn't work, that it was a fraud. Again, that the LDS faith was just a farce. Being in, 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 being in crisis mode for about three years, I had a suicidal note that was already prepared just in case. I frantically went to get it and I was unable to find it for a few minutes. And when I did, it was in my scriptures. I found the envelope. It was addressed to my sibling. It was tucked away in Mosiah chapter 18. I, I decided to read that chapter and realized it was about my baptism covenants. I was already on my knees sobbing when I decided that I would just say a prayer about what I was feeling, the response I immediately received said, just believe. I felt this power from within a ground of my nervous system. I felt better. I haven't had a drink ever since that prayer. And yes, I eventually got around to emailing my bishop an apology. He was so kind to me. Shortly after, I got a prompting to quit my job, work on my resentment, return to college, and volunteer some more, which led me to travel internationally for a few months. I still was very on the fence with, with everything, but I had enough to make me pivot, and I just went with the flow of that. I was a little bit more open-minded after these spiritual experiences. By the end of 2019, I was volunteering at Moria Refugee Camp with Help International in Greece as a crisis worker. It was volunteering here that helped me with, through my many of my resentment issues, 
it just broke me and broke me in half and it hurt so good because I was learning so many things about myself. I felt a stronger connection with my Heavenly Parents and my prayers to Heavenly Father. I really felt I was really learning in a way that I hadn't before and it was healing. Also being at Moria, I had a better understanding from all that my family went through as refugees when they left Vietnam during the war. Afterwards, I traveled a bit to Turkey and Spain. When I was in Barcelona, oddly I was prompted to go to Bangkok. I had been there before, but the thought came, maybe I should go visit the motherland again. The motherland as in Vietnam. So I decided to photograph members along the way. When I was in Thailand, I made new friendships with my gay besties. They took me around the city when a monsoon happened. We went to a Thai temple for shelter. It was there that the family that inherited the temple had told me about the Buddha that was hand-painted on the wall and said some scripture. Later I find out these phrases that felt so familiar to me were both in Genesis and in the Book of Mormon. I was floored with this new knowledge. Once again, I pivoted. Another turning point was when I was in Bangkok, I picked up an assignment to photograph Elder Anderson visiting the Thai saints. Him and his wife were there, and I happily took the assignment. Those days following the apostle around and photographing him softened my heart greatly. This was the guy whose talk I just read in 2017 that made me rethink, that made me think of God again. I knew everything was coming full circle. We had a conversation, and it impressed upon my heart that when I returned to the States, I needed to go to the temple. Yo, I was like, what? This is, it feels so extreme, but in all my pivoting, that's what I needed to do. So I skipped my trip to Vietnam, returned home to San Jose, and by this time, all the flights that had just shut down internationally, and I luckily had been in the States, and they shut down because the pandemic was starting. So in the new year, February 2020, I met with my new bishop, because I'm in a new ward now, um, because I moved again, and I decided that I would do whatever it takes to go to the temple. I bought garments. I just went all in. I was like, whatever it takes. And my health was falling apart, and wearing garments was not the most friendliest on my skin at this point, but I just said the way the universe is telling me is that I need to be at the temple and I'm going to do it, whatever it takes. So I called two of my friends, Lindsay and George Nijme, and they went with me to the temple. I was determined to figure things out now with all of this new conviction. With that, I still wasn't sure if I should keep my name on the church's records. I went a lot that month of February of 2020 until the temples closed because of the pandemic. So I get released from my church service missionary photography calling. And oddly, I get called into the office of the new mission president where I met with him and his wife. And they were building a social media team and offered me a calling with the mission. I talked with them for a bit and shared some of my concerns and I don't know them. I'm extremely guarded. 
still not trusting and very reluctant. But I knew that in volunteering, I was able to receive more answers about myself. It helped me with my healing. And I was very limited in these kinds of opportunities. And so I knew because of the pandemic, um, restricting so much. And I saw this as an opportunity to to volunteer. So I told the mission president, yes, but in my head I was thinking, I'll just give you six months. And before I leave, he offers me, he offers to give me a blessing. And I freaked out. I didn't really want anything to do with the priesthood. I was incredibly cynical, but I also felt something push me to let him do this. I remember looking at his wife and just seeing the kindness in her eyes. And it just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let him give me this blessing. And I remember my mind completely blacking out. I don't remember what was said. The only thing I remember is I didn't feel scared afterwards. I didn't realize this immediately, but in hindsight, this blessing got me moving in the future. It prompted me and pushed me towards the things I should be doing and guided me to the things that helped me get back on track with my brain. Having ruminated for so long, I developed PTSD, CPTSD to be exact, and my memories were just not the greatest. But a week after this blessing, I had a conversation with some friends and a scripture reference came to mind. It was Jacob 5. It stood out so clearly. I opened up the Gospel Library app, new phone, much updated app, and realized that the scripture that came to mind, I knew it perfectly. I also knew it was because of this blessing that President Smith gave me that helped me. Once again, my heart softened a lot towards my conviction in God, and I pivoted accordingly. So even though I'm making small strides in my progress towards being more involved in the LDS faith community, I still struggled. I was embracing Zoom Church because it helped me ease into that church life, but it was when I was volunteering with the social media missionaries that really helped me. I was given this calling to be the church, I'm sorry, the social media coordinator for the California San Jose Mission. And I had no idea what I was doing. I've had some pretty extensive um, social media history and here in the Bay Area about opportunities to be like the part uh, research participant for Instagram, for Facebook, for Twitter. I was a part of the first group of what they now call influencers, but we were just a first, the first community of Instagram. We hung out with the people who actually made the app. Um, I went to Facebook events that Mark Zuckerberg put on, but these weren't things like it wasn't like a big deal back then. And this was 2011, 2012. So the experience I had was back then. But between that and my calling and this mission president, I felt like blindly trusting me. I, I oversaw these a group of missionaries, and they changed every seven weeks or so. Some stayed longer, so some stayed shorter. But they became my family. And I... I didn't understand it, but volunteering with the social media missionaries really helped me. Their different personalities seemed to resonate with different parts of my soul, and their experience 
helped me with my awkward questions of faith journey. Like Sister Rowley, when she expressed her anxiety and shared it with me, I was like, oh, let's talk about anxiety. And and she would call me and she became my anxiety bed, right? And on the team and she felt more comforted and Elder Webster in his unique eccentric ways. And, and I needed that. I needed Elder Kindle and DLR and Stewie and Hickens and Elder Kafusi. But most importantly, I needed I needed my elder Apuna. And importantly, Elder Tai, who was my main missionary that helped fellowship me. They knew that like I was so hesitant being around them. I mean, I went from just being in the world, loving the goodness of the world, not thinking much about God, and all of a sudden, I'm in a different area of goodness in this world. But with these missionaries, it was just like a lot in what felt like a short amount of time. But they each helped me want to to get to know the Savior better. And I remember in the beginning where I saw like Elder Weaver, and he served a Vietnamese-speaking mission, and that spoke to parts of me that's Vietnamese, and Elder Rumble and Elder Croton, who taught a sibling many discussions and got them thinking about God again. It was just miracles upon miracles from these, not kids, they're young adults, but these rambunctious personalities that were just so loving and tender and all they had in common was that they cared for me. They cared for other people. They just cared and cared. And and it was so genuine. I saw God work through them. I saw the Savior work through each of them. I remember when Elder Ty suggested I should read a scripture every time I started to feel rumination. And he said, just start reading the Book of Mormon. I said, nope, I do therapy as is. I do talk therapy. I do brain spotting, EMDR, and it's making huge strides for me. And he goes, well, will you call, will you add reading the Book of Mormon to your list? And I said, okay, I'll, I'll try this. So in the beginning of 2021, I, um, though I was released from my photography calling, I still picked up assignments. And this one was to photograph um, Reverend, Amos C. Brown in San Francisco, again, alongside Elder Gerard from the first quorum of the 70. I showed up early and talked with Pastor Brown. He called me over and said, Black girl, what is your story? I, I feel that it's very rare that someone would recognize me that I'm mixed um, Asian and Black let alone would acknowledge me by calling me a black girl. And that's a compliment, especially from him. I smiled at him and began to open up. I shared with him that I'm mixed race and gave him my background of my refugee Asian mother and my Black Panther father, the racism they endured and the colorism I faced. My sister looks the mix of the two, but I look white presenting. And so my whole life, people questioned and doubted when I shared that I'm actually just Asian and black. And and um, the people who knew that I was mixed black were the ones that were black themselves. 
he asked me about the hardships that I faced. And he said that it's important to acknowledge and to work through my racial trauma and how leaders like himself and his joint efforts with President Nelson are to help overcome and overcome prejudice and to root out racism. And it starts with healing our own stuff. And I just thought, well, I'm healing. You know, it takes some time, but like, I'm all about that internal stuff. I'm grateful for my experiences, but, you know, I just, there was just so much trauma one after another after another that I never had any real time to breathe and take care of it or acknowledge it really. But I just knew I'll do whatever it takes to get better. And I took his advice to heart. And I started acknowledging there was pain when I first found out that I was mixed black. I was 10 years old on my knees next to my mother and sister. And my mother had to apologize for having mixed black kids and being with a black guy. And then my sister and I were forced to be on our knees to, to apologize for being black. And it was painful. It was so painful because conversations around race wasn't something that happened in my home another racially charged traumatic event that I experienced that I had dismissed was at my mom's funeral in 2002 where the funeral wasn't completely over and a relative there had made some really strong racial remarks against my sister and I, and they didn't want us to be around. So we had to watch the remainder of the funeral from afar. And it made no sense. And it tied back to this family that I was estranged from at the time when I first got that one blessing in 1999. Things started to come full circle, and I realized it was... The healing had always been there and that it was waiting for me. I just had to really turn into, you know, I had to turn inside, but I couldn't have done that without the help of others. Um, so I wanted to end on this and share that it was doing my black family history again. At the same time, my concerns with Joseph Smith started to intersect. To be specific, um, my family history, my mother's side is Vietnamese, but my father's side is black, but we also come from a very mixed black background. And if you're familiar with colorism, please, you would understand this, but those that don't, please look this up. And, and colorism means it's a prejudice or discrimination, especially within a racial or ethnic group, favoring people with lighter skin over those with darker skin. Under the system of colorism, it's, it affects every culture, um, I think, outside of white Caucasian culture. But I know that within my Asian side and my black side, it's prevalent. And I learned the reason for the mixed race um, being all over the place in my family history was because Enslavers had multiple upon multiple partners 
And so the result of their offspring will then be put back onto the plantation, which is my black family um, back then, uh, the formerly enslaved. And they would mix. And so you'd come out with children that were light black people or darker black people. And my sister looks the mix of us both, but I came out light. And so my whole life, I've, I struggle with why am I the one that looks white presenting? And how come I met with so much like doubt and fear even because I don't look like either side. In all my family pictures, I'm like the only one white kid. And, um, and my sister blends in perfectly with both sides. And I just learned all of these truths and it just made me feel so whole. And in doing my black family history gave me answers to Joseph Smith. And I realized that Joseph Smith wasn't the only one who had multiple upon multiple partners. In fact, he wasn't the one that started it. It was the enslavers. And the reason why you don't hear about this is because those multiple partners, it could be 50, it could be 10, it could be 100 women and children of color because they weren't counted as people, but only as commodity. And the proof of this is in the the slave records. And they would result in mixed children that were counted as commodity. And slave codes justify the horrific act of sexual abuse. Unfortunately, unfortunately, because it was law, it was easily justifiable. And I'm not equating polygamy to slavery at all, but I feel strongly in sharing this information that the reason why the restoration of the gospel took place in the United States and during in that time was because there had been this veil that many don't know um, about this piece of real U.S. history that took place. And that, I mean, yes, the Emancipation Proclamation happened in 1978, but how many since then still aren't aware of the enslavers and their abuse amongst those um of the slaves and detail it's important that we know this there's no it is not um, by chance that this happened and so for me all of my concerns with joseph smith and when i read the church essays and read about polygamy i was quite surprised how that just went away and truth is truth and heavenly father wants us to have truth but you know it's great if not greater than truth it's the atonement of jesus christ and i look back and I realized that Joseph Smith was never, ever trying to say, focus on me. He was trying to say, focus on the atonement of Jesus Christ. Focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what I look to now. When I came to this knowledge, I had completed reading the Book of Mormon. And I remember feeling like I couldn't refute what I had read. I felt safe, peaceful, and familiar, like unlike anything I've ever felt before. I started to have these special, unique experiences tailored to my knowledge and learning found through in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the goodness of the world. And I just thought, I'm healing. I can't refute this. I cannot refute this at all. And the, this stuff was, this knowledge was planted before I was even born. And it humbled me to know that as I entered through all this journey, the suffering, confusion, that healing was already provided before that started. And it's still there for me now as it is for anyone listening to this podcast.
So I had all these special and unique experiences, all these very special and unique puzzle pieces that came into my life. And I pivoted accordingly. And it was such a personal experience. And I remember, I remember that conversation with Reverend Amos C. Brown and then finishing the Book of Mormon. And I was, it came to myself, I was like, do I want to remove the records of my name from the records of the church? It still made sense to go ahead and do that. Then out of nowhere, this person who stands 6'10", weighs 330 pounds, shows up and visits my missionaries. He had a cousin that was serving in on my social media team. And um, it turns out that he actually lived in my ward boundaries, went to my ward, and was this young kid. I mean, I'm much older than my missionaries. So, like, I... I was, I'm not trying to say that young people don't know, but after these young missionaries have taught me a thing or two about the gospel of Jesus Christ through their examples, this person, um, he's kind of like my first friend in the church. I was reached out and was like, hey, so just felt prompted to share a very personal story of his. And this guy is like super goofy. He looks incredibly intimidating. He plays in the NFL and just has the kindest spirit ever. And he shares with me this super personal story that, once again, I'm sobbing. I'm like, what the heck? Who told you about this to tell me this? And it was like I had gone through an experience where I had hurt someone else by an action that I wouldn't have normally done because of my questions of faith journey and people call these people gave me the name of faith crisis or faith journey but I call it well it's a bunch of swear words but for sake and purposes of this podcast I just call it questions of faith and this this guy he was just like I just I'm not trying to put myself in your life I'm not telling you to tell you what to do but I I really feel prompted to share this he's like I don't tell anybody anyone about this part of my life and I was like okay whatever but I listened And I was sobbing afterwards, and I realized the most important thing that was holding me back was forgiving myself, you know, like really forgiving myself. Like I didn't know that that, that, like I was never responsible for any of those sexual assaults. And a lot of the actions that I did that hurt other people was hurting me, but it was because I was acting out in survival mode. And the people who didn't give up on me were the ones that really cared. And this new friend of mine had just made it clear. He was like, God was making room for better things and better people to come into your life. And I hope that you will still keep yourself open to receiving these new experiences. And that when the temple reopens, because again, we were still in pandemic mode, that um, I would go. And I was still, I was on the fence. You know, although I had returned back and started wearing garments again, I was still on the fence, and and so I had to come to another come to Jesus moment. But this one, I collected all of my experiences, and just had a very long talk with God, and said, "Okay, was this meant for me to stay in the faith community? Am I meant to stay here? Like, oh, I want to heal. Like, tell me, and I will pivot accordingly." 
so when the temples reopened in 2022 I went back I continued to go I never I did had decided after that prayer that I would not remove my name from the records I would and I still I still choose to do whatever it takes but I'm not as hard there's not um guilt and shame uh on me and I'm kinder and to myself I give myself more grace and and I just show up and I'm not afraid to show up anymore it's easier said than done but it's also it's it's not only important to have a testament but it's important to have the answers too I did receive all of the answers to the questions that were breaking my heart we are meant to receive this knowledge and, and to act accordingly. I know now in my heart that the atonement is real and nothing in my life is above having that in my life. Nothing comes before the atonement. I truly believe that the Savior is returning and all of my life choices lead towards that. In the end, I had given up on myself. I am so grateful for those that didn't give up on me. I'm grateful for the volunteering opportunities as it allowed for me to participate in community care and I was able to find a safe space for myself to do my shadow work. I even got to know my mother's immigration journey better. I got to heal from racial trauma. I'm so grateful for the kind souls who reached out to me because they were prompted to do so, not knowing why and especially my situation, it literally saved my life. Like that giant of a person I told you, like Annie, she had a sister who passed away due to suicide and she didn't know that I was constantly struggling with this. And Annie and her sister Angela followed the goodness of their heart and were that much needed guardian angel for me, Christine Hartung, who I knew from back in the singles word days early 2000s and we hadn't spoken years and she gets the ping her and her husband and um she reaches out to me other people like elaine blackwell and elaine scott and corinne mia Barra, mike palma john palmer jonna laura sammy golan and of course my sisters this this made me realize that while i have ups and downs in this faith community that over there are good people here and they will do the right thing i just had to be open up to receive it in the end i share the advice of my therapist daniel burgess regarding a faith crisis i personally like to call it a question of faith journey but you call it whatever you're comfortable with here are two of my favorite quotes to someone going through a faith journey, faith crisis, I would say that it's completely normal to have questions and doubts about one's beliefs. Exploring these questions can be an essential part of personal growth and spiritual development. As a therapist, I encourage open and honest communication about your thoughts and feelings. I believe that seeking answers and understanding different perspectives can be beneficial in the long run. It's important to acknowledge that not all questions may have immediate or definite answers, and that's okay. The process of exploration can lead to a deeper and more authentic understanding of one's beliefs and values. If you feel that your church discourages 
questioning or seeking answers, it might be helpful to find a safe space outside that environment where you can discuss your concerns without judgment. This could be with friends, family members, support groups, or a mental health professional who is experienced in matters of faith and spirituality. Remember that your spiritual journey is your own and it's crucial to prioritize your well-being and personal growth. Engaging in introspection, reading, or discussing with others can help you navigate this challenging time and potentially lead to a more profound and fulfilling spiritual life. My favorite quote, my favorite quote from Elder Anderson, and it's from that talk, Overcoming the World. He says, overcoming the world is not a global invasion, but a private personal battle requiring hands-to-hands combat with our own internal foes. Overcoming, overcoming the world means treasuring the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all, with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And that stake president who gave me the blessing that first year, but I was done with the church, I end with this quote. Healing may take a lifetime, but doesn't mean a lifetime of pain and suffering. We need to hold on to the hope of the atonement and find joy in our journey. Thank you, President Perry, for that. I can feel the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it feels deep in my DNA. My life feels whole because of it. Thank you for your time and listening to my interview. Tiffany, on behalf of all of our listeners, you are really brave. Thank you for your courage to share your story. It's an incredibly brave thing you've done. I am personally so moved. You are one of the most unique, courageous. You're a survivor. There's no story I've ever heard like yours. You have worked through so many difficult things, but you have helped so many people that are working through difficult things by sharing your story. There are things in your story that will, because your story is so multifaceted and so unique, and full of trauma from so many different sources that should be the source of love and support. People resonate with your story, and they'll resonate with the brain that keeps going through the same loop. And some of these phrases you've used like, um, well, I wrote down so many making decisions out of trauma and just recognizing all these dots that you've been able to connect in your story. None of this was born out of desire to disappoint God. It was just survival mode for so long, but you help us understand the core doctrines of our church that help sustain you. This overriding theme is, I am a daughter of God, and heavenly parents love me, and we're, and maybe that resonates for you more than it does for some of us in the church that have had supportive families, supportive infrastructures, haven't been a refugee, aren't in a mixed race, um, aren't LGBTQ. So I'm not part of any marginalized group. And so that doctrine still is sweet to me, but maybe it's sweeter to you because it's been the foundation truth that's helped you survive. 
when everything around you at times is not has not been always helpful but still you give credit i love where you name so many people in your story that along the way have been so helpful um i think all of you that have been named i wrote down some of the names while some of you that haven't been named this is an incredible love story for all the people that have helped tiffany i think it's an incredible tribute to your mom who is not here but maybe hears this story and her hopes and prayers that you would have a better life and you are living that life and it's a credit to her um and you honor her even though you didn't get closure with her um i love you use these terms i wanted to feel safe over and over again what a human need that we all have to feel safe and with the sexual abuse with at times difficult church leaders at times with areas that should have been safe for you that weren't you that's what you wanted it's a human um fundamental need and then you use this turn to be seen and the people that really saw you at times how healing that was i love your therapist this jewish person that didn't particularly like the church um i think she taught a wonderful principles of therapist that our, our job, I'm not a therapist, but I like that therapists help people find their best way forward, even if it's a different path than they're living. It takes a lot of maturity as a therapist to not make it their story. She didn't like the church, but she recognized that that's maybe where you would find joy. And um, I love your connection with LGBTQ people. Often people of marginalized groups connect and understand other marginalized groups and bring hope and healing. I love all the queer friends you have in your life and um, all the people that you've probably helped along the way. Listeners, I, I just, this is a podcast some of you will listen to a few times because it may be the first time you've ever heard a story that resonates with you. You have incredible vocabulary, Tiffany. You are very um, self-aware and very understanding of how your brain works and and the realities of your life, it's a credit to you that you have gone sort of deep to understand your story, have hit it head on, and then are writing the rest of your story. Some of your story was written out of just survival mode. Um, alcohol was part of that. And now you seem to be in this place, you're writing your story out of strength and out of who you are and a fundamental understanding. And it's an incredible tribute to you um, the love of our heavenly parents for you, the atonement to heal hearts, the role of therapists. Um, I'm just, and here along the way, you're this gifted photographer. You've worked for NGOs. Um, you are very non-one-dimensional is maybe what I can say it, but you represent the future of our world, just who you are and your worldview. Listeners are recording this on Easter. You won't hear it on Easter. It'll come out after Easter. But I find it ironic that we're talking about the life of Christ. And part of his life is his ministry to all those that were marginalized, including somebody that arrived in Texas. <laughs> um, and the pain you felt about circumstances outside of your control and our responsibility, um, if we're followers of Christ, and I read the gospel, to start first with those that are the most marginalized and help them feel full inclusion. That, to me, is part of the reading of, of Jesus's life, as well as the resurrection and what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the way we treat others, 
and the way we bring people to full inclusion and the way we help them feel seen and feel safe. And, and I love this conversation I think you had with Elder Gerard where he somehow recognized you um, are partly black and he wanted to talk about that part of you and you loved talking about that part of you. It's a good part of you. But our society has taught you to be guarded about everything about so much about your past. So, you know, I just, if I could reach out from the Zoom and give you a big hug, I would. What you've done is really courageous. Your whole life is really courageous. But what you've done with the courage and the vulnerability to share your story, Tiffany, is remarkable. And you are, we have this quote we use a lot, the wounded healer. And I'll read it in case listeners aren't regular listeners and are just connecting with this episode for the first time. Henry Norwin writes, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. We've done 600 episodes, Tiffany, and you may be the one with the, that represents the wounded healer the very best of anybody I've talked to. And I don't know if that's a, in a way that's, I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> um, or just a, a, a reality of, and the woundedness isn't anything you've done to cause to yourself. It's just the reality of your life experiences. But the miracle and the credit to you is what you've done with all of this wounding and what society as you reached out rewounded you at times. But now you have in your therapy work and in all the circles you're in, you're the wounded healer. And there's probably people listening that go, Tiffany was my go-to person. And Tiffany was the person that just kind of got it. Tiffany just somehow knew that my story and knew what to say. And so there's so many people who have been led out of the desert because of you. And and hundreds and hundreds of listeners that would that may not reach out to you, but are helped by what you said. And your journey with the church is unique and beautiful. And I think terrific. And how you've navigated all of those curveballs, I think is, I don't know. I, I sort of think Heavenly Father know you well enough um, to kind of know this would be your journey with the church. And he loved you along the way, equally when you were going to church and equally when you weren't, and just knew you well enough to know that you'd figure this out. And um, where you are is really remarkable. So listeners, that's all I'm going to share. This is a longer episode than usual, but I think it needed to be. This is a beautiful, unique story. And this is a platform to share long stories. And we don't have like a set time. And I pray when we start these podcasts that I won't cut off a story prematurely. Um, that, that would be helpful for just a lots of listeners, but especially someone in particular. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you, bye. On behalf of all of our listeners, a remarkable, courageous woman who's got decades ahead of you, um, helping and, and supporting others, and our world and our church and our community is better off with you in it. So listeners, um, it's time to end, but I just wish we in a way we didn't end because I was so moved by Tiffany. But Richard Osler and Tiffany will sign off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.